Hey, welcome to night school. Just couldn't resist doing an episode. I'm drinking a rock star right now. I'm cheating on Bang. I'm cheating on Bang with a rock star. Because I went to Rite Aid. I had to walk to the post office and I went to Rite Aid. Dear diary. But I, the price of Bang has gone up. This is how you know inflation is real. The price of Bang has gone up. As long as I've been drinking Bang, you can count on the two for four deal. You can get two Bangs for a total of four bucks. It is not wavered as long as I've been drinking Bang. Lately, I've been noticing, and it was universal, so I knew it was some sort of promotional deal that Bang itself has set up because every single store, whether it's a grocery store, whether it's a convenience store, doesn't matter where you go. You could get two for four Bang Energy drinks. And I've noticed some places now are selling it. It's like two for four forty-five, as if I wouldn't notice. And so that's how you know inflation is real, that the cost of Bang Energy drink is going up. You know, I use gas prices to measure social tension. Hey, Batty, this is an important topic right here. I can't be distracted when I'm talking about Bang. Come here. Come here. But anyway, um, just try to ignore it. Um, it's the first clear day we've had in a while. And as a result, there are human beings around. And Batty responds to that. He hears everything. Hey, come here. Come here. Come here. Whatever. He's upstairs. Anyway, I measure social tension by observing gas prices going up and down. When there were those two back-to-back mass shootings earlier this year that came at the time that gas prices were skyrocketing. And uh, if there's not causation, there's correlation. But then I measure inflation by the price of Bang Energy Drink, and I know that inflation is out of control because Bang Energy Drink has gone up in price. I'm not going to abandon it because I genuinely like Bang. Bang isn't a matter of cost efficiency for me. It's not a matter of convenience. I genuinely like Bang Energy Drink. And even though it's, you know, a funny thing to talk about that I've incorporated into this show the last couple years, I'm not saying it ironically. I don't like Bang Energy Energy Drink ironically. But today they they had a at Rite Aid they had a a 2 for 3 Rockstar deal. And I forgot about Rockstar Energy Drink. Rockstar got kind of overshadowed by Monster, and I've never had a Monster. I don't plan on ever having a Monster. My biggest problem with Rockstar is, one, I'm drinking this sugar-free version, which still has 25 calories, because let me just do a little Bang promo here. Bang Energy Drink is zero calories, and it tastes good. It genuinely, if you get the right flavor of Bang, and keep in mind, the very first can of Bang I ever had was cotton candy flavor, which we know artificial cotton candy is one of the worst flavors on earth. So the fact that my introduction to Bang was artificial cotton candy flavor, which I accidentally bought, I got it from a vending machine, which is funny because I was on a walk at the Evergreen State College and I went into a building to use the restroom and I saw the machine and I was like, you know what? I think I'll try that. I think I'll get a Bang energy drink. And so it's funny to me that my very first can of Bang came from the Evergreen State College, considering Bang is a, a Republican company. You know, Bang is very, 
Trumpsfeld supporter. I, I believe the owner donated money to Trumpsfeld. So it's funny to me that they have a Bang Energy machine at at Evergreen, and that's where I got my first one. It's funny because Evergreen protests everything like that, so they must not know about Bang. For example, like Evergreen's, their cafeteria is supplied by Aramark, and there's some controversy with that. Like it's connected to Monsanto. Monsanto. I think there's something to it like that where. Basically, it's Evergreen's food is supplied by some company that is connected to Monsanto. It's anti-environmental. It's capitalist. It's it's bad. So when I was at Evergreen, one of the big controversies was Aramark supplying the food, and people would protest it. So it's funny to me that there's this Bang Energy drink, at least one, probably many, on the Evergreen campus, but I don't think they know that it's a Trumpsfeld funding they fund Trumpsfeld's campaign. And of course, I've talked about him before, but Bang's CEO is this freak. Steroid, steroided up, fake tan. He looks like a Bang energy can. He looks like a Bang energy drink, which is perfect. That's what you want. When I talked about him before, I brought up the CEO of Abercrombie & Fitch which during the peak of Abercrombie and Fitch, when all my peers were wearing it, I had a few Abercrombie things in junior high. I wasn't above the trend. But when I saw the owner, I was like, this is perfect. Because he looked like Andy Rooney. You know, that guy who does, I don't even know what network he was on, but that old guy, Andy Rooney. It's like you took Andy Rooney's head and put him on a roided up young man's body, but with kind of saggy old man muscles and a fake tan. That's what the CEO of Abercrombie looked like. He looked like a freakish old caricature of the sort of young men Abercrombie was tailored for. Kind of like Vince McMahon, too. I think there's there's something about these roided up old CEOs. It's like a certain archetype or something where you have the Bang Energy CEO, you have the Abercrombie CEO, And then as a kid, I remember watching wrestling, and it was around the time Vince McMahon got involved, you know, when he went from being just a commentator to being the evil CEO character, and he would wrestle. And I I distinctly remember seeing Vince McMahon take his shirt off for the first time. And yeah, when he was wearing his suits, you could tell that he he worked out. You could tell that he kind of, he had big squared off shoulders and everything. But you don't know how much of that's real, like... When someone's wearing a suit, he could have shoulder pads. But when Vince McMahon took off his suit and wrestled, how he had these, he obviously took steroids, obviously had a fake tan. He looked like a caricature of a wrestler, but old. And there's something about that that I like. <laughs> so so I, when I saw the Bang Energy CEO, I think he's had plastic surgery. He's freakish. Like I said, he looks like a can of Bang Energy drink. But anyway, you know, Rockstar, it's like in addition to not tasting good, like considering it's like, yeah, it's the sugar-free version, but Bang doesn't have any calories. This one has 25, and it doesn't even taste nearly as good as a good can of Bang. And yeah, the cotton candy Bang was kind of gross, but it didn't, it didn't deter me from drinking Bang religiously. And the good flavors of Bang are truly good. I genuinely enjoy the flavor. To the point where I have to be careful that I don't drink it too fast, considering what it is. 
But one of the beefs I have with Rockstar, in addition to this, the fact that this doesn't taste very good, I just I kind of wanted to spend less money today. It's not really a bang day. It's an off day. I don't need a bang today. I'd rather. I'd rather. Sometimes you'd rather get a deal than a bang. But I, I hate the whole Rockstar name, it, and it's very indicative of the time that this drink came out. Because you also had Rockstar Entertainment, which was the name of that video game company that made Grand Theft Auto. And so there was a period of time around the late 90s, early 2000s, when companies were naming themselves Rockstar. And even just people were casually throwing that term around. You're such a rock star. You would see kids who just had t-shirts and all they said on them were Rockstar. There's something despicable about that term, Rockstar. So when companies named their products, when, when companies named themselves Rockstar, there's just something so gross and despicable about it. So that's one of the problems I have with Rockstar Energy Drink, but I'm drinking one. In other news, you know, I walk to the post office, and like many of my walks, I always have to go to the bathroom mid-walk at least once. And girls always say, oh, if I was a guy, I'd just go anywhere. Women think that men are dogs with regard to their ability to go to the bathroom. How often do you actually see a man on the side of the road or in some semi-public place pissing? Very rare. You don't see it that often. And as longtime listeners know, I'm a pee-shy guy. I'm a pee-shy guy. I'm a pee-shy guy. One of the very first night schools was about the fact that I'm pee-shy. And it's the only time that I'll say pee. You lose testosterone when you say pee. I have to go pee. The only time to say pee is when you're talking to women or children or you're describing yourself as pee shy. Piss shy. If you say piss shy, it's like you're trying too hard to sound like a man. Because if you're pee shy, you should sort of demean yourself a little bit by calling yourself pee shy. You shouldn't try to mask what that is. But anyway, I'm a pee-shy guy, and as a result, even if I could, even if it were totally acceptable for me just to piss on the side of the road, even if somebody can see a corner of my shoulder, that's too much for me. That'll cause me to tense up. So even if I could, like even if it were socially acceptable for me just to go wherever like a dog, my body wouldn't really allow it. But women will say that they'll be like, if I was a guy, I'd just go anywhere. It's not how it works out. One, there's the whole sex offender thing. And even though part of that's mythologized, like as a kid, you hear these stories like, oh, so-and-so, a drunk guy was walking home from a bar and he went over to a bush and was pissing and a cop saw him and he got charged as, for indecent exposure and now he's on the sex offender list for life. That's happened. I've heard real stories where a man who was pissing in public in a totally appropriate way got arrested for it or got in trouble for it. I've heard stories like that, so it's not that that's a total myth. but It's partially mythologized, but you would hear it a lot growing up as a guy. Like, be careful pissing in public because you might get on a sex offender list. So that's a part of it, too. And then on top of that, it's just not socially acceptable to piss anywhere and everywhere. And I don't know where women get this idea that just because all we have to do is whip it out, 
whip it out. Just because that's all we have to do doesn't mean that it's convenient. And thinking about my walk today, there was no place for me to do that even if I wanted. There was no place along my walk for me to do that. I would have had to have gone and like pissed on a at, at a strip mall storefront. I'm going to piss in, in, in front of this storefront. There would have been no place for me to do it. And there are some places where I normally would. Like uh, there's a Starbucks along the way. I've been going to this Starbucks as long as I've lived here. As long as I've lived here. And just recently, they put door codes on the bathrooms. And I'm sure if I asked, they would give me the code. But that's just a sign of the times. Because this Starbucks has been here forever, and they never had door codes on the bathrooms. On my walks, I could go into this Starbucks and use the restroom not have to ask permission, not have to ask for a technological code. Makes me think of the Ted Kaczynski thing. The fact that I can't even use the restroom without typing a code into a machine just plays into his points in the manifesto. But that's a new addition. And I think it's because of the increase in homelessness for sure. And they would never admit it. Starbucks being such a progressive company, they would never admit it. But those door codes are on the bathroom because there's tons of homeless wiggers living in the woods next door. That's the only reason those door codes exist. They didn't just randomly decide, oh, we're going to make it less convenient to use our restrooms. They put door codes on because the amount of homeless wiggers in this neighborhood has increased tenfold. And I wish they were full on wiggers. I wish these guys were full-on wiggers like they went all out and were just dedicated to that persona, to that style. But the issue with these homeless wiggers is it's like half-assed. Like they sag their pants and talk that way. You know, I did an episode a while back where I was commenting how homeless people have just sort of taken on Ebonics. Like white homeless people of all ages I think what prompted that episode was there was a lady screaming, a lady who was like well into her 40s, and she was on the side of the road screaming in Ebonics, a middle-aged white lady, and how you'll walk by like old homeless men now, and they're talking in Ebonics. It's just become the language of the street. But yeah, those door codes are in Starbucks now on the bathrooms because of homeless wiggers in this area, and they're half-assed at it too. They're not dedicated to the Wigger cause. They've just sort of taken it on because it's the language and style of the street now. And, you know, thinking about the Wiggers in my junior high and, I guess, high school to some degree, although junior high, were the, that was the peak years. I was in junior high in, like, 1998 to 2001. I started high school right before 9-11. So I was in junior high from like, let's say 1998 to 2000. Those were the peak years for being a wigger. And at that time, I never would have correlated that with homelessness 20 years later. It makes sense now in retrospect that those guys would be prone to homelessness or that that style would lend itself to homelessness. But at the time, I never would have thought that because it was still kind of cool and edgy. But anyway, this wasn't, this wasn't meant to be a Wigger episode. So Starbucks has added that, and we all know why. 
But then after I went to the post office, there's a Burger King nearby, and Burger King is a source of comfort for me. I was never a McDonald's man. I was never a McDonald's man. I was always a Burger King fan. And I've mentioned this before, but I have product synesthesia where Burger King, Pepsi, and Ford are the same. Whereas McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and Chevrolet are the same. Like, I have synesthesia that sees how those fit together. Ford, Burger King, like Ford is to Pepsi, is to Burger King, as Coca-Cola is to McDonald's, is to Chevrolet. That's my own form of synesthesia. So Burger King has always been a source of comfort. And for that matter, fast food restaurants provide me comfort, even though I don't eat eat at them, because it's like you can go in there and nobody's ever going to make you use a door code. I'm sure there are some neighborhoods where even the Bur- Burger Kings have door codes. I'm sure there are some neighborhoods. I've never been into a fast food restaurant that requires you to punch in a code. It's one of the few places where you can go in and you never feel any guilt about using the public restroom. Like if you're on a road trip, if you're on a walk, you never have to think, oh, I got, I got to buy a drink. Oh, I got to buy, a, I gotta buy a, a small fry to use the, the Boyga King bathroom. You never have to think that way. But I went to go use the Burger King restroom thinking, oh, there's my savior today. Starbucks is, you know, Starbucks has no bathroom or they do, but you have to go through, a, you have to wait in line to ask the door code now and probably feel pressure to buy something. But I was like, Burger King's going to save me today. And I went and it was locked. Not just the bathroom, the entire indoor dining, as they say. That's a new phrase that's really made its rounds. Indoor dining. Indoor dining. And what's even going on now? What's even happening now? Is indoor dining closed again or is it always closed? I don't even know what stage we're at. You know, I get that masks are now just expected. Like there's not even any debate about whether to wear masks or not wear masks. I go to the store, everybody's wearing masks. It seems to be required still. I don't even know where we're at with that though. And I didn't know that you couldn't go in Burger the Burger King down the street. I had no idea that Burger King locks its doors. That is drive-through only. I thought we were past that. I thought that you could go into places and order food and use their restrooms if you wore a mask. I thought you could do that. So I don't even know what stage we're at with Coronavi. It's kind of like that experience I had on eBay. Couldn't go without an eBay reference. It's like that experience I had on eBay a week or two ago that I mentioned where they're still flagging you if you use the word mask in your post, in your listing. How I got flagged for using the word mask, even though I was not selling a mask. I was, use, I was selling an action figure from the mask series. And they're still flagging you for using certain keywords because there was a week where people were stockpiling masks and selling them online for inflated prices. eBay is still flagging you for using the word mask and the word dust even though that was a year and a half ago and it was only about a week that there was even an issue with people hoarding masks. 
So there's little things like that where I'm like, why is this still in place? And that's kind of how I felt trying to go inside Burger King today, and the doors were completely locked. There were cars lined up in the drive-thru. But I'm like, the indoor dining at Burger King is closed now? And I live in an area, too, where most people, I don't, I don't know a single unvacked person in Olympia. I don't know a single unvacked person. So here we are in November 2021. Most people are vacked. I'm vacked. And I can't even go use the Burger King rest, restroom. You know, this is insane. But anyway. It's not even the fact that they're doing it so much as the fact that I don't even know where to get information on this stuff. I don't even know where you... I don't know how you sort any of this out. It's like everything is so fractured that I don't even know how any of it's supposed to work. I don't even know what the policies are. I don't know who's enforcing them, who's not enforcing them, who has their own weird little policies like EB, like EB, flagging you, not letting you sell things that use the word mask, even if they have nothing to do with actual masks. You know, I don't know who's doing what. And I think that's been the problem all along. It's hard to know who's doing what. There's no memo that goes out. There's no Amber Alert that lets you know. But anyway, that's my day. That's been my day. It's been a good day other than that. But part of this show is just me getting shit off my chest. Excuse my language. Going to add a little bit to the Ted Kaczynski. Not going to do any more reading or analysis of his manifesto. But I was Ted Kaczynski for Halloween about seven or eight years ago. There were about four years where I was... I wouldn't say that I was a serial killer every time. That's kind of what it became. Like, it kind of became, oh, Eric's a serial killer for Halloween every year. I was Charles Manson one year, and I don't consider him a serial killer. I don't know that I consider Ted Kaczynski a serial killer either. A terrorist, yes. So I wouldn't say that, because it was about four years, so I was really only a true serial killer two years. But I was a killer. I was somebody involved in murder. And I'm splitting hairs here. But anyway, the first year I was Jeffrey Dahmer, which was a very easy costume for me. The next year I was Charles Manson. And then the next year I was Ted Kaczynski, followed by the Zodiac Killer. And that ended it. That couldn't outdo my Zodiac costume, so I retired that whole phase. But when I was Ted Kaczynski, it was the easiest costume in the world. Where I just, I wore a gray hoodie that I already had. A gray zip-up hooded sweatshirt. I shaved my facial hair into a mustache. I wore aviators. And just to make sure there was no confusion, I took a, a yellow padded envelope and I stuffed it. And I drew a bomb on it. I'm still proud of that bomb. It was kind of a cartoony bomb, you know, just like a round black bomb with a fuse that was burning. But it was kind of artsy. I'm very happy with that bomb. And that's exactly what Ted Kaczynski's bombs looked like. They came in manila envelopes with a bomb drawn on them. No, but I decided, you know, to get a little cartoony with it just to make sure people knew exactly what I was. But what was nice about that costume is it was such low effort, but people knew who I was. A lot of people, that that 
police sketch of the Unabomber is so iconic that people, especially if they're a, you know, a certain generation, knew exactly who I was. But what was so strange is I went to a bar with friends that night, and I was at the bar ordering a drink, and this black girl came up to me, and she goes like, you're the Unabomber. And I was like, yeah. And she seemed really excited. Like, her energy was very warm and kind of flirty. Like, she was excited that I was the Unabomber and that she recognized it. And she wanted to engage with me. That was the vibe she gave off. Because I was just some guy ordering a drink. She's like, you're the Unabomber. And then there was this brief pause, like, a, like milliseconds. And then she goes, only a white boy could get away with that. And I just walked away. It's like, it was amazing to me how quickly she went there with it. And how illogical it was. Because what I wanted to say in response was, yeah, if I wasn't white, nobody would have any idea what I even was. If I wasn't white, putting on a hoodie, having a mustache, and wearing sunglasses would just confuse people. They, they wouldn't even know I was wearing a costume. They wouldn't know what I was trying to be unless I told them. The only reason you were able to walk up to me and say, you're the Unabomber, is because I'm white. Because the Unabomber was white. And if I wasn't white, I wouldn't be immediately recognizable as the Unabomber. What's so strange about it, though, is that she didn't seem to mean it in a confrontational way. I don't think she was looking for an argument. I don't think she was looking to shame me. Which is so telling. And this is probably 2013, 2014 at the latest. But the fact that she immediately went from this warm... And I don't think she actually abandoned the warm, flirty energy, which is interesting. I don't think she expected me to get defensive. And I didn't. I just walked away. I was like, conversation's over cut the mic. That's how I responded. I think she expected me because this was a very liberal bar in a very liberal town. Like this is the kind of bar where the I know who the owner is. He's a very liberal middle aged man. The sorts of signs they hang in the window, you know, you can imagine what they say. All of the clientele, very liberal. So knowing that, like, I think she went, and, and just to explain who she was, like, she was, I think she was an Evergreen student. You know, I think she was probably an Evergreen student. That was the vibe she, she had. And she came up to me, though, and she was just like, you're the Unabomber, like, very excited and warm and kind of flirty. I got kind of a flirty vibe, like she wanted to talk. And... uh but the fact that within milliseconds she went from that to only a white boy could get away from that. And I think she expected me to respond to that and be like, I know. I, I know, right? Like, she, implying that my ability to get away with, whatever that means, my ability to get away with dressing up like Ted Kaczynski is because I'm white. What would happen if I wasn't white and dressed like Ted Kaczynski? If a black man, opposed to a white man, dressed like Ted Kaczynski, does that mean he would get lynched? What would happen? Or let's say that I was an, an Arab. Let's just go with non-white men. 
If I was a non-white man and I dressed like Ted Kaczynski, beyond the fact that nobody would know who I was, beyond the fact that nobody would make the connection because they, they would look nothing like Ted Kaczynski, what does she think would happen? Does she think that there would be like a mob, the KKK would swarm the bar and be like, there's a black man, there's an Arab dressed like Ted Kaczynski inside of that bar, let's get him. But that kind of plays into that whole logic, and we're seeing it right now with the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, where I'm seeing a lot of leftist pundits say, just imagine if this was a black teenager. And you hear that line of logic a lot, and you're not allowed to ever question it. Yeah, what would happen? And they're like, well, they, would, they wouldn't even have had a trial. They just would have executed him. That's sort of what they're implying. And so this girl's logic, you know, eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, it was based along those lines where it's like this idea that there's a double standard to everything and that white people get not just privileges, but get away with doing things that other people don't. And are there situations where that might be true, especially historically? Well, I think that's another conversation. But the way that this is applied down the board, and it's not allowed to be questioned or defied, and that's where she was coming from. And what got me, though, is how quickly she went there. It wasn't like she and I got in some long conversation about what it means to dress up like the Unabomber. It was that she went from recognizing that I was the Unabomber excitedly approaching me about it in a warm way, in a flirty way, to within seconds saying the only reason I could get away with that is because I'm white. And like, there wasn't enough time for her to like consider the alternatives, like, well, what would happen if a non-white man dressed like the Unabomber? First of all, nothing. Beyond the fact that nobody would know who he was, nothing bad would happen to him. So she didn't, even, she didn't have time to even consider that. She just wanted to point out that me dressing like the Unabomber was somehow indicative of white male privilege. Which tells you that the equation was already in her head. And I've said this before, but a lot of this logic, this quote-unquote logic that people use, it's, it's kind of like ad-libs where the sentence is already formed in their head, the idea is already in their head, and they just fill in the blanks based on whatever they're seeing in the current moment. Right now with the Panzer Division Kyle Rittenhouse, the, that sentence was already formed regardless of that particular scenario. All they have to do is fill in the blanks. And that's what this girl did with me in the Unabomber costume. The ad lib was already, the sentence for that was already formed. All she had to do is go, white male Unabomber. And that's what's so telling about it. It's this, it's not even an ad lib, it's a mad lib. And you could make a stupid pun about that. A mad lib. She was a mad lib. But there was no conversation to be had. It was a missed connection because she said that. She and I could have fallen in love. And I have to say, too, I never imagined in a million years that a black girl would hit on me because of my Unabomber Halloween costume. 
Oh, the only reason you think... Oh, you think that black girls don't know who the Unabomber is? Apparently they do, but I can tell you that living in the place, places I've lived, being the person I am, I never imagined in a million years that a black girl would approach me with flirty energy at a bar to bring up my Unabomber costume. Because like I said... Even when she said, like, only you can only get away with that because you're a white boy, I don't think she meant that to be off-putting. Given the environment that we were in, I think she expected me to, like, be like, oh, I know. I know. I think she expected me to agree with her. So I don't think she was trying to insult me or be off-putting, which is even more telling. That that is sort of the currency of conversation. But it just shows you they can plug anything in anywhere. They can plug anything into that way of thinking. And it doesn't matter if it makes no sense. And what's so funny about that, too, is when do you ever hear about non-white men getting in trouble for Halloween costumes anyway? When do you ever hear about that? The only times that you ever actually hear about controversy or trouble related to Halloween costumes is typically when a white person dresses as something that's considered culturally insensitive. So when do you ever even hear about anybody except a white man getting in trouble or, or raising any, you know, you know, creating any controversy because of their Halloween costume? So that adds an extra dimension to it. Like, would there be newspaper articles? Like, if a black man dressed up as the Unabomber for Halloween... Would there be articles being like, can you believe this? Whereas there are newspaper articles about people who dress up as culturally insensitive, you know, who wear culturally insensitive costumes. There are newspaper articles about that. I'm not even making that up. There are actual journalists write about it. There was an article that came out last year where a girl wrote, this is an editorial in a newspaper where she called this woman out for some costume she had worn at a Halloween party years earlier. We can see what's going on with the blackface costumes and everything. But it's just, it's the most bizarre thing. But it's common. It's a common way of thinking. And I can tell you that some of the people I was hanging out with that night would have agreed with her if they heard that. They would have been like, oh yeah, she has a point. What even is her point? What even, what even is her point? It doesn't make sense. The point is just to call out the fact that I'm white. You know, so it's just, it's funny. You know, just thinking about Halloween costumes in general, it's funny. I had a Jewish girlfriend for years, and I had this tan shirt that was kind of like a military officer's shirt. It was a short-sleeved tan shirt that I'd gotten at a thrift store. And it kind of had a little bit of a military officer feel to it. And I used to wear it all the time in those years. I used to wear it all the time in those years. And my Jewish girlfriend, who lit the menorah every year, she would light her menorah every year. She was a practicing Jew raised in a Jewish household. She also celebrated Christmas because she loved presents. She loved getting presents, let me tell you that. But she was a Jew. And 
one Halloween, she was like, oh, you know, because you have that shirt, you should totally wear a Nazi armband for Halloween. And we weren't going anywhere. She and I were just going to be at home. Trick-or-treaters were going to be coming to the door. She wasn't suggesting that I greet children at the door with a Nazi armband. She knew that she would be the one greeting children while I would be probably smoking weed in the back of the house. But I, it was her idea. It was my Jewish girlfriend's idea that because I have this tan shirt that I should make a Nazi armband and wear it for Halloween. She thought it would be funny. And so that night, I just on a, I, I made an extremely sloppy one on a post-it note. And for about a minute, I stuck it on my arm. And she thought it was really funny. It was her idea. I did it to humor her. I'm not even saying that. I'm not even saying that to like absolve myself of responsibility. I couldn't care less. My Jewish girlfriend thought it would be funny if I wore a Nazi armband on Halloween. And so I, I made an extremely shitty one on a post-it note, not even an armband, just on a post-it note. It stayed on my arm for a minute before it fell off. And she was all about, like, she used to, like, talk seductively about, she's like, you're a Viking, and I'm just a gypsy. She had a whole fetish about it, it seemed like. This idea that I was, like, a Viking invader, and she was a, just a gypsy girl. So this kind of played into this fantasy she had. But it's just funny to me that it was my Jewish girlfriend who thought the armband would be a good idea. But we can see where, like, this might have been forgotten now, but... About 20, maybe a little over 20 years ago, there was a controversy where Prince Harry, who's now ultra-radicalized on the left, you know, he's, he's gone full-on into that way of thinking, but Prince Harry had gone to some party pre-social media, and he dressed as a Nazi. He dressed as an SS officer or something. He wore a Nazi armband. And somebody took a photo of it, and it hit the tabloids. And it was this brief controversy. It was like, Prince Harry was a Nazi. And people thought it was bad, but it obviously didn't ruin his life. But I don't understand why that's a big deal. It's so funny to me that it's this one day of the year where you're supposed to dress up like a monster, a ghoul, it's acceptable to dress as a killer. Nobody ever told me I was being inappropriate for dressing like a serial killer. Nobody said that dressing like the Unabomber was inappropriate because he killed people in real life. Nobody said that. Nobody cared. Everybody was just like, whoa, that's a cool costume. But it's the one day of the year where... It's completely acceptable to dress like a ghoul or a monster. And you can even dress up like a real-life ghoul or monster, a bad person. But dressing like a Nazi on Halloween is bad. Even though it implies that you don't think Nazis are good because you're dressing up like one on the, the day of the ghouls. Somebody who genuinely believed in national socialism a genuine nazi is not going to dress like a nazi on halloween they're not going to see a nazi as a ghoul that should be caricatured by a costume on the day of the ghouls so why is that a problem and i mean you could 
just apply that to any number of issues that go on. But I think that's a good example because it seems pretty obvious why somebody would dress like a Nazi on Halloween. And it's a clear indication that they don't see Nazis as good guys if they're dressing like one on Halloween. So just one of those little things that a great example among many. But, uh, you know, my Jewish girlfriend back 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, thought it would be a funny idea. But anyway, only a white boy could dress like Ted Kaczynski. Because that's the funny thing is that, you know, some of these more offensive costumes, like if a black man dressed like a neo-Nazi on Halloween, there might be somebody who's like, ooh, that's pretty edgy. I don't know about that. It would be acceptable, though, because the, the joke would be obvious. The joke would be completely obvious if a black man dressed as a KKK member, a KKK member. It would be pretty obvious why that's a joke. If a black man did it. But it's somehow white privilege to dress like Ted Kaczynski on Halloween. Just another ad lib among many. And that was seven or eight years ago. But I want to talk about my Zodiac costume for a minute. Because it shows you how like sometimes the most effort gets the less results, the least results. Like my Ted Kaczynski costume was almost effortless. I drew the, the bomb was really cool. I'm really proud of that bomb drawing that I did on the envelope. But it didn't take me more than five or ten minutes to do it. I just took ink, drew a quick bomb. Drew a, it's what we call drawing a quick bomb, doing a little quick bomb drawing. I drew a quick bomb. That was the most effort. Other than that, I put on a hoodie that I wear normally, shaved into a mustache, and wore aviator sunglasses. Completely effortless, but people loved that costume. People loved my Unabomber costume. Even that girl. The reason she came up to me, like, her eyes were glowing. Her eyes were glowing. And even though she had to launch into this immediate ad lib, which just shows that she was operating under that logic all the time, the fact that she had to bring up my race in relation to my Unabomber costume shows me that she just has that built into her all the time, bringing that kind of thing up. But she seemed to like it. The way she approached me was warm. But uh, what's so funny about that is that costume got a lot of positive responses, even though it was totally effortless. Whereas my Zodiac costume was very elaborate and nobody gave me any, I didn't, I didn't get any positive feedback. I really didn't. And I didn't even put the effort in. My girlfriend at the time made that costume for me and she hit the, she hit the ball out of the park. And it wasn't even my idea. It wasn't my idea to dress as the Zodiac. My girlfriend's friend knew that I had dressed as killers before, and she was like, Eric should be the Zodiac. And I was like, that's a great idea. And my girlfriend was very crafty. She had made her own Halloween costumes for years and was very good at crafts and sewing and all kinds of things. And so she was like, yeah, that'll be my project. And she bought black fabric, measured it, 
she cut out a piece of cardboard and like put it in the fabric so that it would rest on top of my head because the Zodiac mask is squared off at the top, you know? And I remember like us sitting there and discussing how we were going to do it. It was a fun night. And she was like, well, how are we going to keep it on your head? And she was like, oh, we can put Velcro on the bottom of the cardboard inside of the mask. And then you'll wear a beanie, a black beanie. And we'll put the other Velcro on top of that. So there'll be Velcro on your beanie, Velcro on the cardboard. And then you'll put on the beanie, then put on the Zodiac mask. And the cardboard will stick to the beanie with the Velcro. Amazing. And then she, she did an incredible job. Like So she, she put the mask together. She, she sewed together the black fabric. Did this whole thing with cardboard and Velcro and the beanie measured my head and then she cut out eye holes and took the same aviator glasses I wore for my Ted Kaczynski costume and like cut little holes so that the the what do you even call those the um what do you even call those things that stick off the side of glasses that rest on your ears I know those have a name don't they either way like she cut little holes so that the glasses would slide into the mask and like she even sewed the glasses into the mask so they would stay put and made sure that I could see. It was really well done and it was it was big. I had this big blockhead the entire time. And then I already had a bunch of black clothes and I had a, a puffy black jacket that I would wear. So she did all the actual work. She made me, her friend came up with the idea and she made me this really nice Zodiac mask for Halloween that was functional. Even though it was kind of awkward to walk around with it on, it worked pretty well. And then I made myself a little gun. I drew a gun, and then I kind of pseudo-laminated it by wrapping it in clear tape, clear packing tape. And so I made myself this little handgun to go with it. And we went to two parties that night. And I'm not the kind of person, like, when I wear a Halloween costume, I'm not looking for everybody to gush over it. But uh, we went to two parties. Like, we went to one party that was, like, her friends. And people seemed really disturbed. Like, they didn't know what it was, I guess. Despite the fact that these were all girls who were obsessed with true crime and that kind of thing, they didn't seem to really know what I was. And that's just how those parties were in general. Like, thinking about her group of friends, they're the kind of people that, like, they seem like they're really tight-knit, but when you actually go to a party with them, they don't talk to each other, and nobody introduces you. It's one of those groups of people where, like, you go, and they're supposed to be these very, like, sociable, positive people, and then you actually spend time with them. Nobody introduces you. Nobody breaks the ice. And if you're in a big Zodiac mask... It makes it even worse. It's already this awkward, silent group of people. And then on top of that, I'm wearing a Zodiac mask, so they can't even see my face. So it just ended up being really awkward and uncomfortable, socially uncomfortable. And then I went to another party, and it was kind of the same thing. Nobody was impressed by my Zodiac costume, even though it was incredible. And there's a video of me online on YouTube of me playing guitar with it on. I'm just playing some like improvised metal riffs. And I wanted that to go viral. I thought it would. I named the video something like Zodiac Killer Exposed. Zodiac playing metal guitar. 
And I sent it to my friend Cameron, and he's like, this thing's going to go viral. Nope. Wasn't meant to be. But it shows you that, like, your effort, you know, and this is just the case in life. Here's a life lesson where it's like the amount of effort you put into something. Like, it's the things, it's the same with jokes and things. It's always when it's like an effortless joke that people find it really funny. It's when you put a lot of effort and time into something that people are indifferent or don't like it. So that's, I learned that through Halloween costumes. My effortless Unabomber costume was celebrated by total strangers. My effortful Zodiac costume, people seem to be disturbed by it and not want me around. But, uh, yeah, I just had to mention my little Unabomber story. I believe I've told it before, but you gotta, you gotta retell your Unabomber costume story every couple years. You gotta remind people about your Unabomber, Unabomber costume. But it's funny, after doing that long episode about Ted Kaczynski the other night, after doing that, it's funny, because immediately after that, like, it was almost impossible to upload that episode. One, it might be because it was long. It might be because it was so long. It just took a lot of time. But I was after I did it, it was like I almost lost the entire episode, which would have been okay. You know, in doing a podcast all these years, I've mentioned how sometimes I'll record an entire episode that's like an hour long, and then I'll just immediately delete it on purpose afterward. I'll just be like, eh, I don't want to release that, and I'll just delete it. Sometimes it's a good exercise just to do something and then delete it. I'm not one of those artists who does that, where it's like, I finished my masterpiece, now I'm going to destroy it. But with something like this, I think it's a good exercise sometimes to do an episode and then just be like, eh, there's some good stuff in there, but I'm going to throw it away. But with that Ted Kaczynski episode, I had nothing but technological problems. It took me hours to upload it. Like, Audacity froze... I had to close it, and, and then like I, tr- I, I couldn't save it. There wasn't room on my hard drive to save this three-hour-long episode for some reason. And so I almost lost the episode, and I had to like recover it. But Audacity recovering it took like an hour. So it was this very elaborate process, and sometimes that's a sign that you shouldn't do it. But I was like, no, I need to upload that. I need to upload that. I feel like it was, I'm, I'm proud of that episode. I think it was a good change of pace just to kind of analyze somebody else's writing. But uh, so I had that issue with technology. And then early that morning, we had a severe windstorm, maybe the most severe I can remember. I was watching the trees violently shake out the window. We lost power for hours. Branches were hitting my house nonstop, just one after the other. It's fairly normal, like living near the woods, it's fairly normal for branches to hit your house during a windstorm. But it was like branches were pelting my house the entire morning. And what's funny about that is it always sounds like giant branches are hitting your house. But then the next day you go out and it's a ton of tiny little broken pieces. But they're being hurled at your house at such speed that it sounds like a giant branch is hitting your house, but it, it was kind of perfect. Just like talking about nature, talking about Ted Kaczynski, talking about technology, the fact that I had technological frustration followed by 
losing power, ha- having a severe windstorm. It was just kind of perfect. And then that continued too, where like somebody had bought something from me. A couple of people had bought something from me that day and PayPal wasn't letting me use their shipping program. Like it was timing out so that I couldn't actually buy shipping online and I had to go to the post office and actually go pay for postage the old-fashioned way. Felt kind of perfect, though. Felt kind of perfect that all of that happened immediately after talking for talking about Ted Kaczynski for three hours. But anyway, not much more to say about Ted. Don't have a lot more to say about Ted, but I, just, I had to remember that that costume story. And it was perfect, too, because given that Ted Kaczynski writes so much about social activism and the leftist psychology, given that's the target of his manifesto, a huge portion of the manifesto, as I talked about the other night, was dedicated to dismantling leftist psychology, or at least addressing it head on. It's funny to me that my Unabomber costume brought that out of somebody. The fact that somebody's response to my Unabomber costume brought out this completely unnecessary, ad-libbed discussion of my race. I feel like Ted Kaczynski himself probably would have smiled if he had seen that. It would have been surreal, I imagine. Like, you imagine Ted Kaczynski before he was arrested, sitting in his cabin, writing that manifesto, and for him to imagine that 20 years later, 18 years later, some kid would dress like him for Halloween and have a girl warmly bring it up, like be like, oh my God, you're you're the Unabomber. And then immediately launch into how I can only get away with that costume because I'm a white male. I don't think Ted Kaczynski could have imagined that when he was writing that manifesto, but it kind of fits in perfectly with some of the points he makes. And I guess while I'm already on this subject, you know, I was thinking about the way race has come up at parties. Like, I still think about this party I was at, and there was a black man there. And despite hanging out with this liberal group of people for years, there was rarely, if ever, a black man there. Even though that's what these people were all about inclusivity and all that but that's just it's indicative of the place we live the pacific northwest doesn't have a lot of black people and depending on what your interests are depending on what you do like most of my experience with black people came from playing youth sports i grew up in areas where there were very few black people my interests don't lend themselves to making contact with black people My hobbies and interests simply don't. And that's true, though, for liberals as well, who no matter what they pay attention to, no matter what they read, regardless of their taste in music, they themselves live a similar life in that regard where they don't have a lot of experience. And when they do, they brag about it for the rest of their lives. Like I dated a girl for a short period of time who, like, for a brief time in college, she lived in a bad neighborhood. And she wore that like a badge of honor. Oh, when I lived in the Central District. 
But what's funny about that is like they'll talk about how they lived in a black neighborhood, but they'll always talk about how dangerous it was. And so they're indirectly, <laughs> they're indirectly like playing the game they hate. Like they're indirect, I mean, not even indirectly, but in a roundabout way, they're basically saying black neighborhoods are dangerous. Meanwhile, they're trying to like say that they're really culturally, uh, they're, they're, they're very culturally enriched. But I think about that girl and like she lived in the central district for like two months when she was in college. And she would always be like, when I lived in the central district, I saw this. It was like this. Oh, all my neighbors were like this. And it's just so funny to me that like she's wearing that like a badge of honor. Meanwhile, all she ever talked about is how dangerous it was because she had lived such a sheltered life that it was like it gave her this credibility that she lived in the ghetto. It was always I never called her out on it because I don't do that. I just rant about it on my podcast years later. But uh, it was funny to me. And I've known a lot of people who do that. Like, oh, when I lived in New Orleans... When I did this, oh, when, when I lived in this neighborhood. But so it was very evident when I would go to parties that this was the case, too, because when a black person would be there, it was amazing to see how liberals act when they're drunk around a black person. Like there was this party I went to and there was a black man there. And he and I ended up gravitating toward each other because it was it was the year that the Seahawks would go on to win the Super Bowl. And everybody who was a lifelong true Seahawks fan had a premonition. We could all feel it. We all had this sensation that the Seahawks were going to win the Super Bowl this year. And it's never a given. It doesn't matter how good your team is, but sometimes you just get this sense. You're like, there's something going on. There's something in the air. This is a magical team. And so serious Seahawks fans knew it. And he and I started talking about football. And so the whole rest of the night, he and I were just talking about Seahawks history. You know, he was like, oh, he's like, I just got a Ricky Waters jersey. And Ricky Waters, he was the running back for the Seahawks in the 90s. So you're a true fan if you care about Ricky Waters. If you know who Ricky Waters is, you've been a Seahawks fan for 20 years. And so he was telling me things like that, and I was telling him about about going to the games with my dad as a kid, and we were talking about the the current team and how good they are and who who to watch and how this game is going to go. We were just completely, as they say, nerding out about football. And I'm not telling this story to be like, I'm the the guy who knows how to talk to black people. Oh, my liberal friends didn't know how to talk to a black man, and I do. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying this guy and I bonded at this party over football. But there was a point in the night where like he and I were talking about football and there was this white rapper there. He did like, I'm not even going to talk shit about him because I didn't know him, but he did this kind of weird, like liberal offensive nerd rap and he was a white man. And I had never met the black man before in my life. I didn't know this guy. We were just drinking and talking football, but the white rapper was friends with this guy. They were friends. Like, they knew each other fairly well, I guess. And at one point, like, we were having a conversation about football, and out of nowhere, and it was late in the night, the white rapper butted in, and he asked the black man, on a scale of 1 to 10, how black am I? And the, the air just went, you know, silent. 
There was nothing in the conversation that provoked this. This guy was just drunk enough to say what he shouldn't have said, like what he was thinking. Because it was clear that for him to even say that, one, that means he was sitting there thinking, this guy's black, this guy's black, this guy's black, this guy's black, I'm white, this guy's black, I'm white. He was sitting there and that was going on in his drunk mind. Otherwise, he never would have asked that question. Number two, he's a white man. He's a white rapper. And for him to ask, how black am I? For him to ask a black man, how black am I? What he meant by that is not how dark is my white skin, because he was whiter than I am, and I'm extremely white. This guy, his hair was blonder than mine. And so he wasn't asking the black man, how dark do you think my skin is? He was equating black to cool. What he was asking the black guy was, when he said, how black am I? He was saying, how cool am I? Give me validation. Because you're black and I'm a white rapper. That means that I'm kind of, I'm going to fawn over you a little bit. You're obviously cooler than I am. He was, he was, what he was doing when he asked that question, he was begging this black guy to give him validation and approval. And you could see the discomfort on this guy. This guy, he just kind of stopped and he kind of like paused. And, and to be fair too, the white man was on cocaine. No comment. I don't, I don't have a lot of experience with cocaine, but I've used it. So there's cocaine involved in these conversations. But this white man used a lot of cocaine because I partied with him a few times. He was a friend of a friend. I was never friends with him, but he was at some parties I went to. He was a big cocaine user. But he obviously wasn't capable of controlling himself at all because in his drunk, coke-addled brain... He was obsessing over this guy's race. And as I'm sitting there, I'm aware of the fact that I'm talking to a black man. I'm aware of the fact that this guy is the only black person at the party. But I'm not thinking about it. I'm talking about football. I'm going, we're, we're both like completely fanboying out over the Seattle Seahawks and how good they were that year. But this guy, he... What he was looking for is he, when he said, how black am I? He said on a, no, what he said is on a scale of one to 10, how black am I? And the black guy just sort of paused and he, and he goes, uh, you're a 10 man. He just told him what he wanted to hear. And you could see this smug sense of satisfaction go over the white man's face. You could tell, like, even though he was, even though the guy was just telling him what he wanted to hear, but his response, like his discomfort was clear. Like it didn't make him uncomfortable. I don't know what was going on in his mind when he answered that question. I could sense it though. And it's not like it made him uncomfortable in the sense that he's like, oh no, I'm being marginalized. It made him uncomfortable just in the sense that it's an extremely socially awkward question. And he's just like, oh yeah, man, you're, you're a 10 man. Just told him what he wanted to hear. 
pretty much it's it's it might as well have been a girlfriend asking her boyfriend, "Do I look fat in this dress?" And him just being like, "Oh no, of course not." It's like an insecure girlfriend asking her boyfriend like, "On a scale of 1 to 10, how beautiful am I?" And her boyfriend being like, "Oh, you know, you're a 10." It was pretty much the same conversation. You just changed the words. And the guy was just like, oh, you're a 10. And I was just like, holy shit. Holy shit. That guy is sitting over there listening to us talk about football, and he cuts us off. He butts in because he's so desperate for validation from a black man. And then he gets this smug sense of satisfaction that the black man told him exactly what he wanted to hear. It was just so stupid. It was silly. And then there was another party I went to. (laughs) This didn't happen a lot, but there was another party I went to. And an interracial couple showed up. I didn't know them. I didn't have any interaction with them all night. There were people just drinking, hanging out. But you see, like, you see what's on people's minds when they drink. Just like everybody overshares when, they, when they're drunk. What I used to hate about being hungover beyond the physical sensation was I would always think about all the stupid things I said, which weren't a problem, but it was just I overshared. God, I wish I wouldn't have talked about that. God, I wish I wouldn't have expressed that. That's what I used to hate about being hungover is I would reflect on all the conversations I could remember from the night before and it would cause me pain. That's what I really don't miss about drinking. I don't miss looking at my text messages to try to figure out if I sent a stupid message to somebody. I don't miss reflecting on the conversations I had. But anyway, when people drink, they overshare and it's often what's in the back of their mind comes to the forefront. It doesn't mean that everything somebody says is what they really feel. But I noticed this especially with liberals, where when they would drink and a black person would show up, you could see like where their preoccupation with race and identity would just come out in embarrassing ways. And there was the guy I just mentioned, but at this party with this interracial couple, people got drunk. And at one point, I wasn't part of this conversation, of course, but I was kind of off to the side talking to somebody, and then I I overheard some exclamation, and a couple white women were talking to this interracial couple, and I heard, I am just so honored. I just want to tell you, I'm so honored that you guys feel comfortable coming to this party as an interracial couple. I just feel honored. That you feel safe being here. And I was just like, oh no. Because the person saying this was smart. Well-meaning. And I know that she would be mortified if she remembered it the next day. But she was sitting there thinking like, I'm just so honored. This interracial couple came to the party. And I kind of, you know, I kind of watched this. (laughs) I have to admit, I kind of got sick pleasure out of it watching this because I watched it. I was like, oh, and then like the other girl was saying something similar. It was two white women doing this to this interracial couple, subjecting them to this. I'm just so honored that you feel comfortable with us here. 
I just, I thought, oh no. And the couple looked surprised. Their eyes kind of like got big. But they played it just kind of like the other guy I was talking about. They played it off really well. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, you never know. You know, you never know when you go to a party. I think they were kind of joking. I think they were just kind of making light of it. They were just like, well, yeah, you, you never know being an interracial couple coming to a party. But it's like, what are we in the 1960s? Are we in, are we in the 1950s here? I'm just so honored. And I was just like, man. Because what that tells me is that the entire night, as soon as this interracial couple showed up, that means the entire night these women were like observing them being thinking that they were just thinking interracial couple, interracial couple, interracial couple. They were just obsessing over that. And then they got drunk enough because, I mean, like we've all done variations of that thought, not with that, but like I've gone up to people at a party and been like, you're so cool. You know, you know, I really like you. You know, you're you're a really cool guy. You're just a you're really cool. You know, I, I've all you know, I've I've always liked you. We've all done that kind of drunk complimentary thing where we're drinking with somebody and bonding with them, and we kind of are just like, "Dude, you're awesome." Give me a fist. For me, it was fist bumps. I went through this brief period that's embarrassing to reflect on, where I would just put my fist out. It was a joke, but it kind of became like something I did for like a couple weeks. Didn't go on for very long. Stupid. It was a stupid thing. A stupid drunk thing. But, uh, you know, we've all done that thing where we're a little too drunk and we, we're get, we get complimentary. This was them trying to do that. It was like they got drunk enough to say what was on their mind and they were trying to be nice. But it came out in the form of, I'm just so honored you, an interracial couple would feel comfortable being here with us. And I've seen other little versions. I didn't see this a lot, to be fair. It's not like this was going on all the time. In part, probably because there were never black people around. Like once in a while. Once in a while, maybe. Like I can think of another time, not just to go down the laundry list of every time it's happened, but like another time I was at a bar and like... There was a black woman by herself on the patio, and this group of friends I was with, like, called her over. They're like, hey, come sit with us. Oh, you're alone over there. Come sit with us. And they were being very flattering to her. They were, like, going out of their way to include her, which is nice. Like, it's a nice thing to do at a bar. If somebody's sitting by themselves, sometimes they might want to be by themselves. But at a bar, you know, it can be nice just to be like, like, like that's happened to me before. I've been alone at a bar before and a group of people like they don't call me over to be like, hey, come sit with us. What's your name? They don't do that, but they include me in a conversation like, hey, dude, what do you think of this? Which is a very nice way to include people like, hey, we're talking about this. What do you think about that? That's a good drunk conversationalist. And when I was talking about going to that party as the Zodiac Killer, that's exactly what was missing from that crowd of people. It was like this artsy, like punk group of people who had no social skills and nobody had that ability to break the ice. So I appreciate that in people. I appreciate when a group of drunk people at a bar is like, hey, hey, what do you think about this? 
Like, we're talking about this. What do you think about it, dude? And they kind of invite you into their conversation. And at that point, you can pick up your drink and go sit down with them. You know, a lot of times I used to go to bars because I wanted to be alone and drawing. But I did appreciate that, especially if I was drunk, too. So I'm not saying you should never, like, call somebody over. But there was this black woman by herself and this group of friends was just like, hey, come sit with us. And they all kind of, like, zeroed in on her. And they were being nice. It's not like they didn't say anything horrible. They didn't say anything like these other people said at parties. But they zeroed in on her and were like, it was like an interview. They're like, so, so what, do you have kids? And, and then it did get a little awkward because they were asking her about her kids. And of course, like the woman, she was a mother and she like started opening up about her kid and she was showing them pictures of her kid. You know, she was happy to do that. I mean, nothing was better than people asking her about her child who she adored. That was very clear, but it got weird because like the people I was with, cause her kid was like half black, half Asian. And they started going on that whole thing where they're like, oh, well, you know that like mixed kids are cuter. Oh, you know, oh, your kid, oh, your kid's mixed. Like that combination that makes for the cutest kid, like half black, half Asian kids. They just, it's the cutest kids. Oh, your kid, you know, it it became very weird. And you could kind of sense the woman getting a little uncomfortable when they started zeroing in on that. There's something almost predatory about it because you start to get the sense that it's not about the person. It's about them trying to get validation from that person. It's not them necessarily trying to be warm and inclusive toward this minority. It's them trying to get approval from that minority. They want that minority to say you're cool or you're a good person. Being like, I'm so honored that an interracial couple feels safe at this milk toast white liberal party. What that is, is it's them being like, aren't I a good person? Aren't we such good people that we would allow an interracial couple to come to our party and we don't berate them and chase them? That's kind of what that is to me. When that white rapper asked the black man, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how black am I? You know, what he wanted was validation. When this group of people, like, called this black woman over and then started going off on this insane tangent about, like, mixed-race kids and how they're the most beautiful children and how her kids are the most beautiful kid they ever saw. Like, while a mother loves to hear those things, you could notice it start to get awkward and uncomfortable Because they were signaling. They were signaling to this woman like, we're such good people. Listen to us talk about how we're such good people. And that's kind of at the heart of so much of this stuff, you know. It becomes about them. They make it about themselves. Rather than just treating this person like a human being, they're fetishizing them. They're calling attention to the thing that you're actually not supposed to be calling attention to. These drunk people are sharing what's actually going on in their minds. It's not criminal. It's not the worst thing in the world. I wouldn't even say it's particularly offensive. I wasn't offended by it. It's awkward. 
And these people tend to think that they're right. They tend to think that they have the healthiest approach to these subjects. I'm not claiming I do. But I know who I am. I know what's going on in my mind. When I was talking to this black man about football, I wasn't sitting there thinking, God, I'm cool. Oh man, I'm so cool that I'm talking to a black person about professional football. And because professional football has so many black players, that makes it even better. I'm talking to a black person about a sport that is played largely by black people. Oh my God, I'm cool. I was just excited to talk about sports with somebody who cared because that year I was insufferable. The year the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, I was insufferable because all I wanted to talk about was the Seahawks. So the fact that I could find somebody at a party to just go off, somebody who knew about the Seahawks in depth, you know. But you see what's on people's minds. You see what's (laughs) buried beneath people, to quote somebody. And that's what that's what happens. That's and that's what you that's the sensation you get when all of this takes place. But you see what's in people already. When these people when these white liberals say these extremely awkward things to black people at parties and in bars, it's just communicating what's actually going on inside of them all the time. And they're just drunk enough to let it out. It's not that they're bigoted, it's not that they're secretly bigoted. It's that they are desperate for validation. It's not that they're secretly bigoted and racist, whatever that means today. It's that they're not, but they're so desperate to prove it. And they're desperate to prove it because they want validation. They want people to think they're cool. They want people to think they're tolerant. They want people to think they're progressive. And so you get a little alcohol in them and they can't help themselves. And it's like with the girl who was a black girl. But when she launched into this thing about how the only from complimenting my Unabomber costume, basically, to immediately launching into how the only reason I can, quote unquote, get away with wearing a Unabomber costume is because I'm white, because I'm a white boy, as she said. That just told me that that's what's on her mind all the time. She is constantly evaluating everybody's actions and decisions in those terms to the point where even a Unabomber costume has to be contextualized, has to be racially contextualized. That to me is insane because it has nothing to do with that whatsoever. And it fits Ted Kaczynski's points in his manifesto perfectly. But it, t- it told me that she has that equation ready to go. She has that ad lib sentence ready to go. All she has to do is fill in the blanks. It's what's already on her mind all the time. And therefore, every interaction could potentially bring that out instantly. She was able to do that equation in her head instantly, even though it made no sense. Even though the equation didn't work out. It was a complete nonsense equation. 
just like throwing random numbers together that don't even add up to the to the sum. And a good example of this, I'll just keep going. A good example of this came up in the news yesterday, I think it was. I saw an article about it where some rich couple, some obscenely wealthy couple just went through a divorce. And this couple had a, I think I think it was a $675 million art collection. They were art collectors. And so, of course, their divorce involved some sort of settlement, some sort of dispute involving their art collection. They had to split their art collection, or I think they had to sell it. There was something where the divorce involved them selling their art collection and splitting the the proceeds. I don't remember if that's exactly it, because that doesn't matter. The point is, is their art collection became public. And somebody wrote an article for a mainstream corporate newspaper. And sure, it was an editorial, but this is what all the editorials are like these days. And so somebody wrote an editorial for a mainstream corporate newspaper about this. Guess what it was about? It was about how this wealthy couple got rid of their art collection because of their divorce and how their art collection did not represent, quote unquote, people of color and women. They said how like their art collection showed how the history of art collecting excludes people of color and women. Pathological. That's truly pathological. And again, it's a good example of these Mad Libs where you can just fill in the blanks. It doesn't matter what it is. It does not matter what it is. A parasitic journalist thought that thought that the right response to that, an interesting response to that, a socially conscious response to that, is to talk about how their art collection, this wealthy couple's $675 million art collection, did not represent people of color and women. Just insanity. But you recognize that people think they're Santa Claus. They're making these lists. It's like I talked about during summer 2020 where I was saying there's people right now who are keeping tabs. There's people in your life. If you're on social media, there there are people in your life right now. They might not even be doing it consciously. But right now, they are creating a list like Santa Claus. They are creating a naughty and nice list. And they know who is posting the black square. They know who is updating their Instagram story with whatever the talking point is. They know who is doing it and who isn't. And they're going to remember whether you did or not. And so this person, they couldn't resist. They looked at this person's, because apparently there was a list of the art. Apparently there was a public list of the art that was being sold because I guess because it was being sold, it was public. And they went through that list and looked at every single piece of art and the artist that made it and critiqued that list based on how many women and people of color, as they say, were represented. 
It's like that guy that I know who posted online. He's a guy that I, that I know through music and stuff, how he was really upset earlier this year because like guitar magazine wrote an article about the top 10 classic rock drummers. And he was upset that there were no black drummers on there, given how much black people have contributed to the rhythm section in popular music. It's the same logic where people are going through any list, any collection, and they're thinking, huh, there's not enough black people here. And I saw this way of thinking, interestingly, I saw it develop about 15 years ago in experimental and noise music, which is heavily white and heavily male. And I, I started to notice some people start to say things like, you know, this show is a sausage fest. They didn't say sausage fest. I wish, I wish they did. But I started to see people say, you know, like non-white people and women are, are just poorly represented in noise music. And it's like, well, why do you think that is? Maybe it's more interesting to non-white people. But they framed it as if it was deliberately exclusionary. And what's funny is like around that time, I remember a black power electronics artist came on the scene and people liked what he was doing. Like, I don't think he became popular or anything, but a black guy, I just, a guy just tried to buy his tape from me actually, but a black man and power electronics was always considered. It's like one of the more controversial experimental subgenres. It's mainly an avenue to explore controversial themes and as a result, even though a lot of the a lot of power electronics artists are in truth libs, they're mad libs, they explore controversial themes. Some of the most famous groups are known for misogynistic themes. They like to take on World War II themes, things like that. So people but people got it in, in their heads that like, oh, because power electronics explores controversial themes. The people who make that music fully embody that way of thinking and deliberately exclude people. But this Power Electronics guy came out. I don't think he still does music. I haven't seen him around in a long time, but I don't pay much attention. But he came out, and people had no issue with that. People had no issue with the fact that a black man was making that music, and people supported him. But there were people who were voicing their concerns over the lack of representation in experimental music. And you see this with metal. You see this a lot with metal, because metal is a largely white men's music. But people don't exclude other people, by and large. Certain things appeal to certain types of people based on who they are, what their background is, and that's just how it is. So this call that this call for um, representation and inclusion is artificial, and someone going through this art collection, they went through it with a fine-tooth comb, just so they could write an article about how there were very few artists of color in this six hundred and seventy-five million-dollar art collection. And people are doing that to you. People are doing that to other people. They're doing that to the people they know. 
In the same way I was talking about during summer 2020, there are people looking at you right now if you're on social media, and they are mentally noting, whether they're consciously doing it or not, they are mentally noting what you're saying and especially what you're not saying. Someone would look through my record collection and be like, I don't see many black artists here. I don't see many women here. And uh, and it's funny, too, because like, I think I've mentioned this before, but many years ago, I was talking to my friend who was a woman, and we were talking about country music. I can't remember who I was talking about, but I was like, oh, yeah, so-and-so is one of my favorite female country singers. And she was like, female country? Like, you have to make a distinction? And I was like, she's a female country singer. She's one of my favorite female country singers. She was offended that I made the distinction female. But when you flip that over... You also see people celebrate, like, when you're celebrating it, like, you, you can see when Kamala Harris became vice president, people were saying, like, she's the first woman vice president. And so when you're saying this from a point of view of, like, celebration, which I was doing, which is interesting, because I was doing that with this country artist. I was celebrating her. But it's like, if it's done in this grand way where it's like we are acknowledging the first female vice president, the first female to do this. She's the first female ever. All these people, they're all about making that distinction in that context. But it's like, if you're just talking about your taste and you say, Oh yeah, she's my, one of my favorite female country singers, even though you're, that's a positive statement. They will split hairs about the fact that you're differentiating. It's kind of like the whole thing about, you know, when steward and stewardess, we're just going to call them all flight attendants. We're just going to call them all country singers. Male country is a different experience than female country. It's a different experience. In my opinion... There is a distinction there. Even though they're both playing country music, there is a difference in approach. There is a difference in that experience of listening to that music. And somebody I know was offended by that. Or at least felt the need. I don't even know that she was offended. I don't think she was even offended. She just felt the need to point out that my language was backward. But yet that language isn't backward when you're saying, like, Kamala Harris, the first female vice president. So it's just, I mean, I'm above pointing out those hypocrisies. I don't like to do that. But sometimes you just got to do it. But it's important to remember that people are going over this stuff with a fine-tooth comb. If somebody is willing to go through this art collection that became public because of the divorce and write an article in a mainstream newspaper about how the fact that this art collection was primarily white male artists 
and did not represent people of color. Like as if people should, oh, I have to diversify my taste. Oh, I'm making a list of my top 10 favorite classic rock drummers. I have to include, it's like people think that everything should follow this diversity quota we see with like TV casting. They think that should apply to everything, including your own taste. If you're interested in a certain subject, you have to include this number of people from this background. You're not allowed to just like what you like. That rich, wealthy, art-collecting couple, they're not allowed to just collect the art they want to collect. The fact that they, col- they didn't collect enough art from this group. You know, it's absurd. But that's what we're dealing with. But these are the same people who are thinking that all the time. They can't even go to a party. They can't even hang out at a, hang out at a bar without obsessing over the identity of, of the people they're mingling with. And when they get drunk enough, this stuff comes out. But they end up being the one who sticks out like a sore thumb. They end up being the freak. And so because of that, i just rather not engage with it. I have no interest in debating it. I vent a little bit on here about it because this is interesting to me. It's psychologically interesting to me that this goes on and that this has become such a mainstream way of thinking, that this way of thinking has the mainstream platform it does. I don't think they should be censored. I don't think that they shouldn't be allowed to write these articles. But if people think that this isn't freakish, if people think that this isn't pathological, I think you need to take another look at it. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can